Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Russell Hargrave. And we are reporters at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary sector. In this episode, we will be speaking to Priya Singh, chair of the NCVO. And later in the episode, we will be bringing back Charity Changed My Life, hearing from one person who has benefited from the services of the Teenage Cancer Trust. But before that, Lucinda, we're going to be talking today about the internal culture inside charities. We've got a guest coming along to talk to us specifically about examples where she works. But before we get into that, why do you think this is such an important issue right now? Well, it's obviously not an issue that is restricted to the charity and voluntary sector. Internal culture, problems around diversity, equality and inclusion, racism, all the rest of it are such big issues in organisations across the board. And obviously, charities are no exception. We've had some really big examples, such as the review of Save the Children in 2018, which then led on to a widespread reform process. And yeah, I mean, obviously, a healthy workplace culture is fundamental to how staff within charitable organisations work together and ensure smooth service delivery, not least at a time like this when budgets are squeezed. Yeah, and it's funny, isn't it? Because there are all sorts of procedural and policy questions about how to make sure charities get better at this stuff. But the essential question is a simple one, right? It's, are staff able to work for the charities they care about somewhere that they feel comfortable, somewhere that they're safe, somewhere that they're treated with respect? Yeah. And there have been an awful lot of bits and pieces where that hasn't been the case. You mentioned Save the Children. There was also reports leaked out of Macmillan cancer care that was reported first by the times i know when i worked at another charity platform i wrote about action aid uk there'd been a very critical report where staff had raised lots of concerns there and that list is actually a rather long one that we won't go into now so it is something that charities have been grappling with and getting it right is a really important part of it yeah although i have the voice of deborah alcock tyler in my head from the very first episode of this year where she was talking about the fact that charities should be anticipating these problems. Of course, if you are in a group setting, an organisation full of people, you're bound to have these problems. Mm. And really, charities should be leading by example and setting the way by acknowledging even before it's been uncovered and leaked to the Times or Third Sector's Russell Hargrave or whoever. Yeah, my, um, my DMs are open, guys. But <laughs> no, I mean, in all seriousness, I think Deborah's absolutely right. If there is a broader culture where these issues exist, they will infiltrate the charity sector. Absolutely no question about it. And you can hardly move on social media, in WhatsApp groups, even down the pub talking to sources. This is something that people are thinking about, worrying about. And to be fair, lots of charities are maybe a little late in the day, but they're trying to get it right. They're trying to get on top of things. And that is such an important part of it. The specifics of today, we're going to be talking to the chair of NCVO, the National Council for Voluntary Organisations. The reason that NCVO is particularly relevant to this discussion is it was back in January 2021 that Rebecca Cooney broke that story about an internal report at NCVO that was very highly critical, real problems with allegations of overt oppression at all levels inside that organisation, which NCVO, I know, has done an awful lot of work subsequently to try and address and sort out. So that's why we're going to be coming to NCVO a bit later on. Yes, and obviously NCVO is such a big deal for the sector because they are the self-proclaimed advocate and defender 
of the sector. However, the report revealed that part of the failure was NCVO's belief that it was an expert on the sector. Well, I'm going to slightly play the role of Deborah Cocktailer now and slightly sort of go against the grain on that one, if only because I think NCVO, we forget you talk to people behind the scenes when COVID first hit and there were so many fears, very deep fears about whether the government would even remember that charities needed to get a bit of financial support during the pandemic. The NCVO rightly get a lot of praise for being there, lobbying hard and being a crucial part of getting that 750 million quid emergency funding pot as it was from the Treasury at the beginning of 2020. So I think Absolutely, but that has nothing to do with their DEI. Oh, no, 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 of course it doesn't. Um, but I think one of the criticisms being maybe they took themselves too seriously as a sector leader. I think there are examples we can give of where they've shown real sector leadership and that has had material impact for charities all over the country. For example, 750 million quid that without NCVO may have been an awful lot less. Well, let us bring on the NCVO's chair. Dr Priya Singh is the chair of the National Council for Voluntary Organisations, or NCVO. She has a background in general practice and has specialised in medical law, ethics and patient safety. She's an executive director of the Society for Assistance for Medical Families, or SAMF, and a non-executive director of Guy's and St Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust and NHS Frimley Integrated Care System. Hello, Priya. Hello. Thank you very much. It's great to be here today. Well, thank you very much for joining us. So in February 2021, you issued a statement to say that NCVO is a structurally racist organisation. The same is true for sexism, homophobia, transphobia, classism and disablism. Two years on from that, where is NCVO at? Well, we're entering our third year of our culture change journey. So it's a fantastic time to be talking about that experience and to be looking forward. And we all know that culture change is not a destination. It's something that will underpin the way we work, the way we are, the way we behave forever. And so we're not looking at reaching a sort of landing place. It's about a constant evolution of what we do. And with any sort of change, what we want to achieve is our new equilibrium. And one of those things that we've experienced is how we strike that delicate balance between respecting the very real experiences and the hurt and anger that has come from the past and the real energy and enthusiasm for focusing on what we need for the future. And so much of what we are doing now is really grounded in the reality of now. If we look at what's being experienced in the sector, these are really challenging times for organisations. And we're here to support, to help to guide through all of these challenges. We know that most organisations have seen a drop in income, a drop in volunteers, difficulties in getting staff at the same time as they're seeing all their costs rise and all of the needs of society rise. So culture is an underpinning of everybody's strategy, of us as a society, of us as an organisation for each of our different organisations. It's an underpinning of what we do and how we do it. And that's how we're viewing it at NCVO. Mm. And I mean, what I just summarised from your quote from two years ago, I mean, it is damning, it's strong and damning. And 
I would like to know, as a supporter of the sector, have those revelations undermined NCBO's position as an advisor, as a supporter, as a champion for the sector? And how have you, in the process of your internal reform, sort of sought to address that external knock-on effect? It's been really extraordinary how much support NCBO's had through this journey. And I think that's based on the openness with which we've gone on the journey. So right from the start, and you'll have seen all of the ways in which we spoke about, our chair at the time spoke about what we were doing, how we were doing, what that meant to us. And I think that openness has really led to organisations and individuals empathising with what we all know is something that exists in society. There isn't an organisation anywhere that doesn't have issues. And we will always have issues in every organisation. And therefore, it's really good for us to do to talk openly and not be defensive about how we go about things. And I think Sarah Vibertis, our CEO, has really modelled that. I think one of the things that we're finding as we go forward is a measure of progress is how does it feel to work at and with NCVO and the feedback that we're getting is really strong and really encouraging and I think that's what allows organisations to move forward with confidence and to build that trust and confidence that is needed for the sector. That's really interesting and you mentioned it's not a landing place. I know any charity that goes through and so many are looking at their culture at the moment, they'd recognise, I think, what you said about it being an ongoing process and a bit of an evolution. Are there any other points that you're looking at, however, to check on its success? You mentioned checking on how people feel working with NCBO. It sounds like that's going pretty well. Are there any other things that you're kind of looking out for to make sure that it's making the changes that you want? A whole spectrum of things. So I think as a board we've looked at the very practical end of the spectrum. So do we have policies, processes, procedures in place that encourage the culture that we want? Are we hearing and seeing information that gives us a real understanding of what is the temperature? How are we finding that information? And then all those things that make us clear about whether our organisation form is the right one to help to support that strategic intent. So when we've looked at, we've done a number of, very early on, we looked at all the policies and procedures, and that's also evolving. One of our new leadership team is Wushraza, and so he's now leading on the next iteration of the people and culture strategy. And part of that is around making sure that we have frameworks in place, making sure that we have development for all leaders, whatever level of leadership within the organisation, we have those things. And then there is the, how do we know that we're getting a temperature check? So there's a couple of things that have been really helpful for us. One of which is the Q&A sessions and sort of all staff sessions that Sarah runs. And that's a very open thing for the leadership team to do. It's well received. You know, we're seeing that sort of more than 80% of staff come to those, which when you consider those staff who 
can't come to it because they're front of house for catering services and things like that because we run the building. That's great. And the ways in which there's interaction through that. So there's all those sorts of indicators. And we're developing our KPIs around people and culture as we have the new strategy. We'll develop the KPIs around people and culture. And then there's the stuff about... So are we structured in the right way so that information flows through the organisation well, supports the strategic intent, and we know that the board is getting visibility across the whole spectrum? Because what we don't want to do, none of us and none of our lives want to do, is see single point information. We want triangulated information that gives us a good picture of things. So... All organisations will go through a governance review usually every three years. And we went through our, we did ours last year. Part of that then showed us that we needed to change our committee structure slightly so that we had different building blocks. So for a while, quite rightly and very helpfully, we had an EDI committee and a remuneration of people committee. And one of the things that we did was to bring those together because actually we're at the next stage and that coordination was really necessary to people, culture, inclusion committee. And the other thing that has been an absolute joy I won't give a shout out to individuals at NCPO because I will forget and then I'll be mortified. But I will give a shout out to our 14 new independent members of these committees. So we've changed the balance of trustee and independence for each of the committees. And that's fantastic. It brings a lot of expertise into the organisation, which really helps alongside the trustee board to support the whole organisation. So those things have been good barometers of what are we doing and how do we know we're along that path. And how does the trustee board and the executive team up? You mentioned Sarah, there's still a relatively new permanent chief exec. How does she and her senior team work with the board to kind of get all this real? Because of course, Boards can't do everything. Indeed, there are lots of things they shouldn't do. And that is absolutely spot on. So there's a really important thing about respecting the different roles. And when you lean in as a board and when you step back as a board and how that works. And it's always the case that where where there are things where the board needs to step in, of course, it steps in very quickly. The issue, I think, for trustee boards is when is it right to step back and how do you do that in a way that is still supportive and that's where we are now and part of the governance review actually was around right sizing the relationship and it's been great to have new board members come in each time because if you're a new board member you bring that under you bring that new perspective of whether that boundary is right Whereas if you've been there from the start, you've lived through the boundary being so much closer or so much more leaning in. So it's difficult to know. So that's been very useful as well. And that's a really important part of what we're what we're making sure we are respectful about. So how often do the trustees come and go? Is it every three years now, the tenure of a trustee? Yes. Well, you can serve two terms of three years. Right. Okay. And how about at the beginning of your reform process? Is it fair to call it that? Yes, I suppose what cultural, yes, it's a cultural journey, it's cultural reform, yes. So at the beginning of that, was the trustee board playing a more hands-on role yes. to get the ball rolling than it is now? Yes, yes. We were really fortunate, I mean, fantastically strong and cohesive trustee board who really leaned in and brought their time, their own individual expertise to be able to help to move things forward and to be clear about knowing what 
needed to be known at that time so that they could be supportive. And that's why now we are very keen to not just see the outcomes of KPIs, but know how they're developed. So that aspect of how often do the teams get together? Then as trustees ourselves, so we recently opened a new part of the NCVO building. So, you know, as trustees, we have lots of opportunity to engage with staff. So you get the soft information as well as the the KPI information. And that's been really good. And that was really lovely. And the naming of rooms, but that's a whole different podcast. What advice would you have for anyone who's embarking on a a similar journey, maybe not had quite the kind of shock to the system that I knew that NCBO went through two years ago, but which is anxious to make sure that its internal environment is right, looking after staff, good relationship with partners, all those things, just trying to kind of give all of that a, a spring clean, as it were. What what would your top tips be? I think the first thing really is that, as I was saying, I don't think there's any organisation that shouldn't be looking at this or that can feel that they don't have issues. So don't feel alone. Through our journey, and because we are visible and therefore the support of the sector we've really developed how we can support organizations going through this so one of the things that has been really well received is that as part of the the general sort of training around good governance there is an edi element which is a three half day element and that's that's been really well received i think the openness and it's easy to say don't be defensive isn't it but listening and holding that space not going into solution mode Mm. too quickly and allowing an organization to heal is really important but I think the main thing I'd say is that it can feel really lonely it can feel sort of as if it's quite isolating for leaders in these sort of circumstances connect because actually everybody's feeling the same thing and it's the right thing to do and you will be supported on the journey and we've been supported on the journey as an organisation, which is fantastic, really. The the membership, the sector, individuals in the organisation, stakeholders, those outside the sector, have had really good support. Hmm. I mean, it must have been incredibly difficult to be open and to say, okay, we're going to stop and just reflect on where we're at now how did the leadership constructively acknowledge the feelings that were clearly so strong within the lower ranks of the staff and not allow it to kind of fester by you know standing still and just saying we're okay we're going to take this all in now before we start jumping at solutions it is about listening isn't it and about really reflecting back what's being heard that balance of receipt and action it can be very easy can't it to go straight into action and there's certain things where you can go straight into action processes policies procedures etc but where you're building trust and confidence that's something that is a slower process because it's worth having the strength to it as you build and if I look now at relationships with the networks are really connected in their different networks the union jcc and how that engages with the leadership team those are really they've built on their strengths over time Mm. so not rushing i think to there is an answer there is a solution if only we do this that and the other and as we look so one of the markers now as a board is how do we make decisions and how do we make change so coming out of the pandemic 
every organisation will have been looking at their working practices and hybrid working, etc. So, for example, setting up a working group to look at that, to evaluate it, to see what the pros and cons, and to work through themselves about where the difficult decisions lie, where the conflicts lie, rather than making those decisions separately, actually work it through. And being comfortable with the conflict. If you have a diverse group of people, if you have a diverse board, I love the fact that we have a diverse board of experience because you are going to have constructively challenging conversations and we shouldn't look to take all of the conflict out of life. Comfortable conflict. I feel uncomfortable just thinking about that. (laughs) It is really important, I think, for us as a society to have comfortable, constructive conflict because we will miss things, we will lose things if we don't push to those boundaries. And the strength of the relationships that we're building, I think really that's what really matters. So if I look at another hat and integrated care systems, that is all public services, health, social care, education, local authorities, the voluntary and charity sector working together, putting the resident, the person at the heart of everything, that's all about relationships. You can have whatever systems in place you want. You can put whatever pots of money against things you want. Ultimately, people make things work. Yeah. And you mentioned some of your other responsibilities. And of course, charity trustees, nearly always volunteers, nearly always not paid, and are doing one job, two jobs, three jobs, have a family life, have to commute into work every day, have all the worries that the rest of us do, plus are doing this kind of volunteering for the sector. Has it been working at NCBO more time pressure and workload pressure than you expected? Or have you found a way to kind of make all of this work as smoothly as possible? I think anybody that takes on a chair role takes on a role that will always have a very highly weighted initial time because you absolutely want to get to know and Mm. get to to grips with things and understand things. As I came in as chair, I was coming in at that time when we had so much going on. So it was a very time-consuming time. And as we have progressed through our journey, that time is still being spent, but it's being spent in different ways. And now it's all about the opportunities and the way in which the sector is really changing itself and the way in which the support it needs and the advocating to government that it needs has changed as well over time. And our partnerships are really strong. So there's so much going on with Vision for Volunteering, for actually having a the work that we're doing about the proposals for the sector going forward with Akivo and things like that. These are really strong things. So Yes, that's a long way to say. Whatever it says on the recruitment pack about time commitment, treble it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a a charity chair, I should say, but um, my wife was for some time. And yes, you get used to eating dinner very late at night while someone is busy reading the minutes of the last meeting in front of you while you have baked beans on toast. I'm familiar with quite what a demand is. And it is really important, therefore, for it to be meaningful engagement and for trustees to get out of it as well as to give and one of the things that came out of the governance review for us was that we put in the post of a senior independent trustee 
Now, that role brought together a number of things for us. So it brought together internal pathways for things like safeguarding, whistleblowing, etc. But it's also a mirror for me. It's a help for me. Our senior independent trustee is the person who leads the evaluation for me as a chair. And that helps us to grow. And part of that then is to have development conversations as well with trustees about how we can bring back and add to them. And all of my roles help me to do the other one better. I mean, and you have so many as I struggled to list them all off in in the introduction to you. What was it that made you apply for the chair role at NCBO? I've been a member as a part of our organisation. Our organisation joined as a member of NCBO about five years before I became chair. And what we were looking for as a small medical charity We were very typical in what we were looking for was high quality, clearly expressed guidance where we could not afford to have all of this expertise internally or indeed to buy it in individually. And my background is, I'm a medic by background, my background is in healthcare and safety and that's through a medical mutual model. So membership really matters for me. So as a member, I could see what NCVO did, how it did it, why it needed to do it. And that's the reason why I wanted to become involved, because I can see and I've experienced the benefit of it. Mm. The thing about a membership organisation is it's about building a community. And that's what the sector needs out of membership. It's those things that therefore amplify those voices and make sure that the support that's needed is available across the spectrum and that all organisations support each other as well. You talked at the beginning about as a leader in a position where you can see that there's a a strong need for cultural reform, you can feel quite isolated, quite lonely. And you mentioned that NCBO received a huge amount of support from other people in the sector. Are there any sort of formalised structures for how you are collaborating with other charitable organisations in discussing things such as flexible working or change in workplace culture that's been accelerated by the pandemic? Or is it more a case of more informal conversations between leaders of various organisations? I think it's a bit of both. I think the pandemic, people are saying very eloquently that we've seen a decade of social change over the course of a year and a half, sort of 18 months. And that's been a great stimulus to collaborative working because that's what we did as a natural way of doing things during the pandemic and that has stayed so we already had a number of really key stakeholder relationships and those have grown and grown I think in part because there's so much more opportunity for it there's so much more need for it so there are a number of initiatives across the sector and Let's assume that you are still NCVO chair in two years. That's what you decide. If you were to come back here, what do you hope the organisation would look like that maybe it doesn't at the moment? What are the kind of bits on pieces in the horizon that the NCVO might be changing on your watch? I think there's a lot of work now around the vision for volunteering and really helping people to contribute in the way that they want to, which is very different from perhaps volunteering even five years ago. 
and the flexibility around that, how you make that a win-win for everybody, that's a really important part. I think there is always development for the sector around how people work together, what good collaboration looks like, and the underpinning of the culture and behaviours that is needed for that. And NCVA will always be responsive and proactive about those areas which need support or advocating to government about. And I think those are really important parts for us to be thinking about. Priya Singh, Chair of the NCBO, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Now we move on to Charity Change My Life, featuring stories of people whose lives have been changed for the better thanks to charities. This week we hear from Ben Peters, who was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukaemia or ALL two years ago and had to give up his job in retail while he underwent treatment. My name is Ben Peters from Swansea, Wales. I'm age 24 and I was diagnosed when I was 22. So I've been living with cancer for just over two years. I first got in contact with Teenage Cancer Trust within 48 hours of me being diagnosed. When I went for a bone marrow biopsy and I returned back to my bed as I was an inpatient and I had a teenage cancer worker sitting there for me. I can remember walking in and she had like this box of it was like activities and stuff to distract me and there was loads of leaflets and information pointing me in the right direction to what support I was entitled to and basically everything that I needed to know about the cancer in general. They've offered me financial support so obviously given that I'd just been diagnosed with cancer I had to give up my job so they pointed me in the right directions for what benefits and stuff I was entitled to. They offered us grants and just anything to make life that bit easier. There was also a lot of like emotional and physical support. My worker would sit there and speak to me for hours. Like sometimes I just would talk her head off and she just sat there and accepted that. Um, the impact the support have had on me have been overwhelming. So I've been given a lot of opportunities to meet new people going through same things, which have been amazing because although I'm going through like a bad situation, there is a positive because there's people I could talk to her about. And it's just made me feel like I'm part of like a bigger family. So they've also taught me that there is life after cancer and they're there to show you that there is. They can point you in the right direction. Overall, the charity have just been my strength through this illness. And without them, obviously, I wouldn't know half of what I do. So I'm just really grateful for them. And thanks so much to Ben Peters for sharing his story about the help he got from the Teenage Cancer Trust. And if you would like your charity to be featured in Charity Changed My Life, we'd love to hear from you. Details of how to get in touch are in the show notes. And that's it for this week's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Anybody who wants to know more, you can now read the transcripts of all our most recent podcasts. Just go to the Third Sector website, look under podcasts, and you can read back everything that we have discussed today. We also wanted to mention that time is running out to apply to attend Third Sector's C-Suite Summit, which is taking place on the 4th of April in central London. The event, which is designed for senior leaders from charities of all sizes, will be looking at the future of the voluntary sector and hearing from experts in the field. The summit is free to attend if you meet the criteria, and you can find all the details at www.thirdsectorsummit.com. But for now, I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Russell Hargrave, and I'd like to thank Priya Singh, Ben Peters, 
and our producer, Navpal. We'll be back next week. <laughs>